Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very, very pleased to be rejoined today by my friend uh, James Emanuel Shapiro, uh, who is the president of U.S. Distribution at XYZ. Uh, has a history in, in exhibition, distribution. I'm excited to talk to him about uh, the, the big event from early in the year, every year, Sundance. Uh, you, you just got back from Sundance a day or two ago here. We, there are lots of, lots of stuff going on there. From your perspective as a longtime festival goer, as somebody who was there to, to buy movies, right? I mean, that is your, that is your, uh, your job now. Uh, what was your sense of how things at the festival uh, were compared to years past? Well, there's going to be two different answers. I mean, this year's market felt robust. Like, I felt like the top end of demand for titles, all those titles have offers and have either sold or will sell in the next week or two. And there's about 80 titles or 90 titles at Sundance this year. So, like, the top level is probably like that top 10 15 maybe 20 titles i think ultimately we'll see like all 20 of those titles are are going to have homes and there'll be maybe a few others that'll trickle in that will go to like more specific niche distributors that are waiting for the dust to settle and um you know basically the stuff that they're interested in once all the big boys will pass on a title, then that's when sales agents will start going into more niche distributors and seeing if they can just make a sale. And so I think there'll be some additional sales there as well. But the other piece of this is this was Sundance's 40th year anniversary. And I think that there's, you know, a lot of reflection going on because it's an anniversary year and Sundance is a whole feels like more fragile than they ever have before. And I mean, I would even argue the same thing is true with Toronto. Uh, you know, and I think that the challenges that the exhibition community is facing, you know, in a post-COVID world, you know, in 2024, where box office is still not expected to rebound at the pre-COVID levels where we were talking about 10 to 11 to maybe $12 billion a year and, you know, in, in total box office. And this year we're looking at like between eight and nine, you know, is the, uh, the forecast. Festivals are, are, you know, in that same, uh, you know, it's a very similar industry to exhibition festivals and, they're definitely struggling. Both Sundance and Toronto had to cancel at least one festival. Sundance had to cancel two. And the lack of ticket sales in those canceled years has really put them in a position, it feels like, where again, they're the most fragile that they've ever been. So while the market was really robust at Sundance, there still is sort of like this underlying anxiety at you know where these premier festivals, whether they're going to still be able to continue in a post-COVID world, with exhibition just meaning less than in what it was before COVID, and therefore festivals are going to mean less. And that is a uh, a real issue with the entire marketplace because Sundance in Toronto and a few other you know markets are key 
for a lot of independent films to find distribution. You know, the, the model has always been you make a movie, you bring it to a major film festival, and therefore you'll find a home for distribution. And hopefully in a way where you're, you've been paid the cost of what it took to make the movie up front at these festivals. So if these festivals disappear or become something much smaller than what they've been in the past, then the ability for smaller movies and independent films to get sold in a fine distribution, that model is going to have to change away from the reliance that they currently have at festivals to get sold. Let's uh, let's talk about the fragility here because I I want to I want to uh, try and draw a distinction between the the part of the festival that just regular moviegoers regular movie lovers go to to either cover you know stuff for an outlet or just to watch the movies versus the market itself because I feel like those are two very dis- those are two intertwined but very distinct things. Um, so when you say that the 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 festival itself feels fragile, are we talking about like it could go out of business or, you know, could uh, could be in danger of shutting down? I mean, I, I feel like that kind of happened with South by Southwest. Maybe I'm misremembering. I feel like there was a festival that did basically go out of business um, kind of and then came back at a smaller, smaller level. Um, or, or are we, uh, is it, it, would it, would it just continue as just a marketplace? Well, I mean, the, the, the way I'm describing Sundance is fragile. I'm talking about the whole thing. So there really isn't, when you go to Cannes, when you go to Berlin, those are festivals that have a significant component alongside of it, that's the market. So Sundance doesn't have a quote-unquote market, but it is a market itself. Mm-hmm. So there is a little bit of a difference, right? Okay. You know, like one's like a giant convention, and then there's a festival attached to it. Sundance is just a festival. So the elements that you're talking to, the press that go, the regular person who who goes, those parts are just as in danger. And it's, you know, it, the, the question for me, because we're, we usually talk about like the intersection between art and commerce, you know, like if Sundance goes away then, or Toronto goes away, then what becomes an effective way for sales agents, you know, and producers to sell the movies that they're making in the best way possible? which has always been at festivals. So if that goes away, you're taking away the excitement of seeing a movie in a theater, and you're sort of like relying now on people watching the movie at home on their computer, you know, which like everybody, when you watch a movie at home, there's distracted viewing that goes on, right? So the optimal way is to see the movie in a theater and at one of these best festivals. So can these festivals go away? I mean, they lost all this money when they weren't able to have in-person festivals, you know, during the COVID years, mm-hmm. Sundance lost two years, mm-hmm. you know? And so that took away a ton of ticket sales and that's like significant revenue for them. So, you know, the, the other part that you're talking about, like people in Utah who go to Sundance and like, keep in mind, Sundance is really expensive. Like it's price prohibitive for most people most average people to go to. It's right. not like you pay $20 and you get to go see a movie. 
you like Park City is a resort town that you know raises its prices for Sundance. So like a one person meal is at least sixty five dollars. Right, right. You know, so it, it it's not like the average person can just fly in and and go to Sundance and get tickets to go see the movies. It really is local, you know, like uh privileged people who get to go to these festivals. Toronto's a little bit different because Toronto's a much bigger multi, you know, like city. You know, it's a city of millions. Right. Um, you know, that has an incredibly diverse culture. So the, they they are catering a lot more to People like regular people in the Toronto area, that festival. Sundance does that a little bit for Utah. Like they do one screening of every movie in Salt Lake City, but it's not at the same level as Toronto. Yeah. I, so the, you know, um, I guess, I guess the, the, the thing I am, uh, I, I am curious about and, and, uh, want to get want to get your take on uh, we we in the past have discussed Sundance and the the virtual screenings and the the watching it online and it felt it felt a, a, a year or two ago that like that was going to be the new normal that it was going to be we're gonna we're gonna there's going to be a large online component and then there's going to be the um the uh in person thing yeah and the in person thing will be where you know the the deals are made and you know people meet the directors and talk to talk to distributors and producers and all that. But, uh, you know, there will be, but I, I get the sense that I, the sense I get from how people have reacted to it is that the online component is being looked more and more as uh kind of a drag on the festival itself, or that it's, that it's not, that it is not working out at, at the very least, like the festival had wanted it to. Well, I mean, I think the initial, you know, positive reaction to having an online portion because of COVID was that, again, the, the things that we just talked about, about how Sundance is really for the privileged. It's extremely expensive for the average, like, press person or just the average movie watcher to go to. Like, if you have an online component, then you're, you've made it a lot more accessible to people because we're only talking about the cost of a badge, right? That's, you know, hundreds, maybe low thousands to get on. And then you can watch all the movies. So all of a sudden you're, you're opening the festival, which sort of prides itself, you know, in being able to be as accessible as possible to anybody, you know, at that point. And that's a real benefit, right? We don't really want to have a privileged system when it comes to film festivals, but, you know, the downsides of online viewing, as I mentioned before, you know, as a sales agent, you know, my company is also a sales agent as well as production and finance and distribution. But we get to see how people watch movies on screeners. We know when they stop. We know when they rewind. We know, you know, how much of the movie that they watched. And, you know, it's clear across the board that it's not ideal. You know, people are not watching the whole film. You know, or sometimes you see them watch all the way through the credits and you know that they just had it on in the background and they weren't really paying attention to it because they let the movie go all the way to the very end. Um, and then the other issue is piracy. You know, there have been significant leaks of major films at Sundance that, you know, the distributors like have gone back and said, we're not putting our movie online you know, because like we're not able to control piracy with it. 
And, you know, that's a major, major concern because you're losing financial dollars if the movie gets out there during its festival premiere. So the the positive about it is you, you're making it a lot more accessible. But then the negative is, is you're actually hurting these movies because A, people aren't watching them in the most ideal way possible. And B, you're risking the movie's financial future by, you know, having the movie get pirated. And, you know, I mean, I understand that there's a lot of anger around the fact that, you know, the online portions have gotten smaller or have gone away from it all. Because again, once you open up the accessibility to it, then if you take that away, then of course you're going to get people upset. But ultimately the filmmakers and the producers, you know, are the ones that are the, that actually can choose whether the film can be available online. And right now, the risks that come along with it outweigh the the benefits of the accessibility. Yeah, I mean, it, it's I, it, it's funny when you say we don't we don't want a privilege system at festivals. We want it. But I look I and maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe I'm just, uh, you know, uh, dabbling in a little bit of uh, um, my own resentments. But it's, it has always felt a little bit to me like one of the one of the uh, elements of prestige to a festival is the inaccessibility in a way. It's, you know, look, the big festivals are in a mountain resort in Colorado, the French seaside uh, right. and Vienna and like Toronto is probably the most accessible of all of them, as you mentioned. But it, it is it is doing a slightly different um, thing. I do. I do think I, I, I do wonder how much of that element of uh of inaccessibility is at least part of the charm and prestige of these festivals i mean i don't think you're wrong i mean you know it, it is uh it it adds to the fact that it just feels special right you know and it is like this ultimate goal for filmmakers to get their movies into these festivals and to premiere it you know at festivals that have a legacy you know like let's we'll talk about Sundance's legacy, you know, like where would the independent film world be in 1990s if it wasn't for Sex Lies and Videotape, you know, and then shortly after for Reservoir Dogs. Like these were movies that the programming team at Sundance saw, recognized the value in it, you know, and was able to premiere it in a way that got the film distribution and, you know, elevated its stature in a way that it, you know, launch the 90s independent movement. So it is special. And, and along with it does come, you know, like not everybody, you know, has access to it, right? That it is, you know, press, industry, you know, and then locals, you know, that, that can possibly attend. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't think that that's wrong. Um, but I do think that in the context of ha having this online portion, it was a little bit of a solve, you know, that we're in, in 2024, accessibility means something different than it did in when the festival started 40 years ago, you know, and there is a much more of an emphasis on, you know, that accessibility. So, you know, I'm not going to disagree with you that the privilege of it doesn't add to its luster and its, you know, how special the thing is. But the online portion changed the dynamic. And now that part's largely going to go away. So we are going to return to, you know, a, a place where it is going to be just for the privileged. 
but now you have people who had a little bit of a taste of it and like you can understand why they're upset yeah uh no totally i totally I, look and again i am not uh, i am in that portion of people who was like oh i can watch some of these online now that's great look at look right, at this right. but it uh but it does change things a little bit all right so let's let's talk about your your week uh or or several days here at the festival as as the uh president for US distribution of XYZ what what are what is your day actually like do you have a like a checklist of films you're like I got to see this this and this and then I'm going to make offers on it. like I I want to know what your actual day to day existence is like at the festival as a as a buyer I mean it seems to be for every festival I mean the phrase that I always use is festivals are marathons that you have to sprint through you know, you, you get to the part where you get home and you walk in the door and you just drop all your bags and you literally feel like your arms and your legs just fall off of your body. Like you get to a state of exhaustion, you know, because the screenings start at 9 a.m., you know, and thankfully, you know, the midnight programs at these festivals have, you know, started to realize that. You know, midnight doesn't mean you have to start at midnight. Midnight only means that you're playing at midnight. So now you're seeing them start at 10 or 1030, you know, which is like you, you, you're you saving everybody a couple hours of sleep, you know, like when you're able to do that. But you're literally watching movies from nine until, you know, the movies end. So somewhere between midnight and 2 a.m. And if you're at Cannes, you know, it's probably more like 4 a.m. So you you have to get up and, you know, shower and then you know go to the theater you you usually have to be there about 30 minutes ahead of time and if you don't have a ticket even more so we're, we're talking about four hours sleep at the most like every day so they get marathons that you have to sleep through and your day is made up of you know trying to see four or five movies a day which sometimes you have to get in line for up to two hours ahead of time you know just to ensure the fact that you get a seat and then the rest is made up with, you know, you, you have the ability, because these are international film festivals, that there's a group of people that you do business with that you only really see four or five times a year at major film festivals. So you, you now have the opportunity to do in-person meetings. So in between, like your checklist, as you put it out, like, you know, here's all the priorities that I have. Sundance is playing 90 movies. I have 15 targets. These are the 15 that I got to see. Because on paper, they look like things that I can distribute, you know. So you're seeing four or five of those a day. And then the rest of it is you're making them up with meetings. You know, you're sitting down with, again, people that you know and you do business with, but they live in, you know, Brussels, you know, or Korea. So, like, this is the only time that you ever really get to have face-to-face -face with them. And that's only going to be at Sundance, Cannes, Berlin, Toronto, you know, maybe AFM. So we're talking about five times a year. All right. So you go, you go to a movie, mm. you, you stand in line for like 30 minutes, you get in, you sit down, you watch the movie. Uh, when you're coming out, first of all, are you there by yourself? Do you have like a, a team of uh, people or, or how's that? How does that work? I mean, the answer is yes. I mean, XYZ again, we, we do a lot, not just distribution. So the domestic sales team is all there. We, we're selling five movies at the festival, you know, including a movie that uh, you know, got received extremely well in the documentary section and, you know, has a robust market built around it. Um, but so they've got, you know, four people, um, you know, our partners are coming in because again, we're premiering movies that 
you know, we've made significant investments in and, you know, we, we have significant hopes. And so, you know, you'll see the partners there as well, you know, and then like the distribution side, you know, is myself and then an acquisitions officer, you know, who like doubles both for the domestic side for sales and distribution. So he's out there doing the same thing, watching movies and, and, and taking meetings. So I think altogether we had seven people, maybe. Okay. Maybe eight. Yeah. Okay. And when you when you are all right, let's say, all right, you see a movie, you 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 wait in line, you see the movie, you love it, you're like, I wanna I want to uh put in a bid on this, I want to try and buy it. Do you have do you sit down with your acquisitions officer and you work out like uh run through the waterfall? Like how does that how does that work? Yeah, so you 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 know, like you have a simple waterfall built and a waterfall is just, um, you know, it's like a financial model of how much money we think we can make and how much money we think the producers are going to make, you know, on the film. But you're mostly, you know, running it by your bosses, you know, like there still is an approval process. But the most important thing is, is like you have to sort of like understand the landscape of what you're getting yourself into if you want to get involved in the film. So you know, people like kind of joke and it's actually true that like once Netflix and Amazon and, you know, like Apple have entered the picture, like that's it. You're not going to really compete, you know, with those guys because they don't have the same P&Ls that other distributors do, meaning like they don't have to recoup the film's budget, like, you know, through subscribers. That's part of their goal. But it's a little bit more nebulous in figuring out like how much movie, how much of this movie contribute to getting subscribers. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, uh, you know, you, you, you always see the headline numbers. I mean, like Netflix by bought, uh, it's what's inside for, I think $17 million or something like that, which is an, yeah. or a enormous amount of money for what yep. is a, a low budget, you know, kind of a horror thriller type type picture. Um, I haven't seen it. Right. So I don't, I don't, you know, but it, it's, but it's, I have. Is it was it was is it worth the seven? See, here's it, I, it's hard to ask that question, right? Because as you were saying, the calculus for Netflix on what is seventeen million dollars worth has d- a bunch of different meanings because it doesn't just mean uh, how many subscribers will this attract and how many subscribers will this keep from quitting. It it, it also is at least in part what are we denying to the rest of the market, right? Uh, I mean, by that, you mean, are they spending this money because they don't want their competitors to have it? Right. What are we keeping? What are we keeping out of the hands of other studios? What are we keeping out of theaters? Yeah, I mean, like, it's what's inside apparently has a theatrical component to it. But I mean, if we know by now, like, the theatrical component to Netflix releases are tightly controlled, you know, so that they're not your regular like sort of wide release. They don't release box office information. Um, you know, they don't really sort of like publicly talk about the distribution plan, you know, of like whether it's gonna go out on X number of screens in week one. You know, they the the theatrical for them is clearly things that are built in to make the filmmakers happy. You know, if Ted Sarandis had his way, then every movie would be on Netflix on day one, mm. you know, because he believes if Netflix is paying, if their subscribers are paying for the movies and to have the movies not available on Netflix, but making money somewhere else, then we're denying, you know, 
the rights of our subscribers. So, yeah. Uh, but, like, it's what's inside is like, I mean, my reaction walking out was like, you know, this is really terrific. It's a lot of fun. You know, it's a little complicated, but, you know, the craft involved in it is really strong. And the roles are, you know, all the actors are sort of required actually to play three or four different roles. So the acting in it is terrific, you know. But, like, it, it was a different reaction than when I walked out of Talk to Me, which sold 2023 to A24 for, like, 8 or $9 million, went on to make 48 or $49 million at the box office. So, like, that was an extremely big commercial hit for A24. It was their biggest genre film, you know, box office-wise. Mm -hmm. Like, so I walked out and talked to me, and my reaction was, like, this is the beginning of an IP. You know, it's going to be, like, you know, hugely commercial. Like, you know, whoever gets this is going to be lucky. This one was a little bit more reserved. So it was, like, you know, I really like it. I really think it's commercial, but it's super complicated. So, like, I don't know how much you can just assume that it was going to do another 50 million at the box office if, like, A24 bought it. Mm -hmm. Like, I, and I, I mean, I think that that was generally sort of how the market reacted to it. Like, there were some other offers that had theatrical components, you know, attached to it. But, you know, they, they sort of faded away around 10 million, which again, about what Talk to Me sold for. So the fact that Netflix took it off the table for 17. With like, you know, that includes all the money that producers anticipate getting as overages, you know, in a traditional distribution deal. So like Sony paying 10 up front for it versus, you know, giving out another 10 million in back end, you know, Netflix is effectively just giving the back end up front, yeah. you know, with that $17 million number. So, you know, like, you know, to answer your question, it's like, you know, like, that's a crazy, crazy, crazy number, but it it's a makes sense for Netflix because again, somebody else is probably going to end up paying that same amount. You're just paying it out in different portions, where you know you're paying up front, and then later on you're paying what the overages are, which is the profit of the movie after the distribution companies recouped all their expenses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and when you when you're uh, so when you're when you have your checklist, I mean, are you looking at we need. We need uh, a horror picture. We need uh, a, a, a drama. Like, what? When, when do you? Are you targeting specific things, or is it just like we want the? We're gonna take the five mm -hmm. best off the off the board that are left. Uh, draft strategy. Yeah, I mean, like, look, Toronto, for example. I mean, we bought a drama in Toronto, and we're a genre company. You know, X Y Z is sort of just known for like edgy, provocative, international, you know, genre films. Uh, so for us to take a drama out of Toronto is sort of unusual, but, you know, we're big believers in thinking out of the box. Uh, so we don't go in thinking we got to get a horror movie. We have to get a documentary. Like we're not checking boxes, um, you know, in terms of genre, we're not really checking boxes in any way other than, we just want to have cool movies that we think have some commercial value with exciting filmmakers that have potential for us to make another movie with, you know, beyond the one that we're just distributing right now. So it's, it's very specific, like targets based on the demand of the movie and what type of filmmakers made the movie, you know, in, in terms of their quality. Is this somebody that we can make more movies with? So those are the two big 
you know, questions for us. Yeah. Um, I have, uh, I have two XYZ films on my radar right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, the first is Restore Point. It's a Czech sci-fi yeah. drama, uh, which uh, is, is, is that going to have a theatrical component? I, I thought I saw in the email that it was, but I, I don't know. No, it's going to be um, no theatrical. We're releasing it in a couple weeks. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad it's on your radar. It's a terrific uh, sci-fi noir that, you know, I think has similarities to Minority Report and Blade Runner. Um, the world building in the film is really terrific. Uh, and again, it's his first time filmmaker. He got nominated for like 10 some awards at the Czech equivalent of the their Oscars. So it, it definitely crossed over to the mainstream there. Um, you know, and again, this is a filmmaker that like we're really excited and we're we're looking at his next movie for the you know the, the reasons why we like to restore point so much. So, you know, again, it's like going back to this idea, like, is this a filmmaker that we want to, you know, keep in the family and make other movies with? Yeah. Yeah. And then the other one, which is not it's not coming out for a little while, I don't think. Uh, but I know you're very excited about uh, Skyline Warpath, which is from the Skyline series, uh, which I it's funny because I texted you. I was like, wait, has Skyline always been a martial arts series? Because I could have sworn it was just like kind of a standard sci fi action series, not a, uh, you know, Frank Grillo. Scott Adkins type thing, uh, but it turns out uh, it, I I had not watched enough of the the series. I mean, like, look, I I love these movies, but the thing about it that I love the most is like it's actually a series, mm -hmm. uh, and they've done such a good job with it. And each one of these installments has been really successful. And again, it's not like you know they're box office films that are making tens of millions of dollars at the box office. But they're really successful in their space, you know, so like Netflix did distribution on the second one and it was like it got a ton of views for them. So um, but the fact that this is the fourth one, they've done such a good job sort of building an incredible mythology, you know, like around the narrative that now it just opens it up that you can tell different stories, you know, in this universe that are not necessarily tied to the main story which sort of started in the first one and then sort of you know veered into a different direction in the second one and then the second half of the second one it becomes like a full-blown martial arts movie and then the third one returned to like sort of the space opera roots so this is like a return again to the martial arts piece of it but like the way that warner brothers is selling furiosa as a mad max you know tale mm -hmm. or like part of the saga you know, that's the same, like, you know, idea that we have here because, like, again, the universe has got such this cool and, like, established mythology and, like, the characters are well-developed enough that you can open it up into different directions, which is what they've done in the fourth one. And that's why I'm, like, really excited that I'm a part of this because I don't just think it's going to be about this, you know, this next movie. This is a, a whole series now that you know, is clearly able to to open itself up in really big directions. And that's pretty rare in this space. So yeah, I'm I'm really thrilled that I'm a part of it now. Well I, I, I think I remember your your tweet was something like, I got an IP, which is right. uh, which is a yeah, rare yeah, yeah. it's a rare thing to to have one of yeah. these come on the market. How does that make it easier to sell the movie, basically? I like 
when you when you have when you go to people and you're like, I got the I got the fourth Skyline movie. I got uh, I have uh, martial artists that, you know, that people recognize from the John Wick movies or wherever else. You know, I've got I've got guys and I've got a title. Uh, you should pay more for this. How does that how does that work? Well, I mean, like the, the general idea around IP is that um, it has a built in audience. Right. And not only does it have a built in audience, but the mainstream audience that you desperately need to get to cross over into your IP film, like if you just get the fans to see it, then you're looking at something like Solo, right? Where, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like a Star Wars IP that only made X number of dollars, you know, at the box office, which was three or four times less than what the normal Star Wars movie does. That's a movie that only the fans went and saw, right? It had no crossover into the mainstream. But having an IP, you have the potential of getting mainstream crossover just because they recognize, you know, the title. So, like, to be in the independent space and to get your hold of something where I don't have to build an audience out of scratch for this movie. Like, it already has a built-in audience and it already has the ability to cross over into a mainstream audience. Like, that's incredibly valuable. So, um, it, it is, it's a real privilege Plus, I, I honestly think that the, the people that are involved in making these movies are unbelievably talented and they should get access to larger budgets, you know, and, and bigger stories, you know, because they are really, really talented people that are making movies that look this good at, you know, on pennies on the dollar for like, as opposed to a regular budgeted like sci-fi epic. Yeah. I is I mean look you 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 as as you put it the, these uh the sequels uh, at least have been you know more VOD uh oriented in the in terms of their business but is this the sort of thing that because it has that fan base because it has recognizable names you could do a limited or maybe larger theatrical run something like a you know a yeah. Juan yeah, yeah. or whatever yeah, well, I mean, like, look, it's not going to be like an Indian diaspora movie, but it is like the message we've told the producers and the filmmakers is everybody else has done this wrong. We're going to do it right. And that includes, you know, like the ability to try to do a theatrical release for it and do like a meaningful theatrical release, you know, like for it. So it, it it's 100 percent. It's like we think that there's an opportunity here you know, that hasn't been done, you know, with this series yet. And we're going to really, really push it out. And like, again, we feel like we can elevate this release and we're on the fourth edition, but, you know, this is going to be the first one that really gets like a significant look in theaters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's super exciting for the the filmmakers as well as ourselves. Yeah. No, I mean, I look, I th- I think, I think the audience is there for this sort of thing. Uh, certainly, I mean, again, at a, at a smaller level, we're not talking about yeah. 3,500 screen release or anything, but well, like, look, theaters need it. I mean, like the big right. issue with theaters right now is like, there's just a lack of product. And you, you know, mentioned that at the beginning, you know, like people like at Sundance are like, oh, we can get something out. And like, you know, now where there's such a little, you know, amount of movies that are in theaters, but I, I just think theaters in general have to be less reliant on studios and more reliant on like the Taylor Swift movie is a good example of like Mm -hmm. something that came out of nowhere 
is not affiliated with a studio, but still made significant money at the box office and kept theaters in business. Like Godzilla, you know, uh, minus one, that's another example, right? Of something that nobody had any idea, you know, like was maybe two, three million at the box office and the movie's going to do 60 or whatever. So theaters need this. It's like if Skyline can, you know, build a little bit of a box office, you know, like component for it. It's like, again, this is a, a way for the theaters to be less reliant on studios, which I think is the, something they have to do just to survive. Like yeah. they're, they're going to need product that, you know, they didn't expect because, you know, not only your studios have less titles, but you know, there's serious questions around like the financial future of Comcast because of like cord cutting, you know, like, how is Universal going to be able to survive if their parent company, you know, loses like the business model that made them successful? Would Disney is, you know, still one of the top studios, but they they've had a challenged year, and you know, superhero movies in general are, uh, you know, challenged. Although I don't think everybody realizes that Deadpool three is probably going to make a billion dollars. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but like that could be the, you know, the anomaly, you know, like the other ones might not do as well. So if you can't count on the Avengers anymore, then again, you're going to need more skylines to help, you know, get us back to $11 billion a year in total box office. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know one of the reasons that theaters, the exhibitors are, are always a little hesitant to, to book. Um, stuff that doesn't have studio backing is, you know, the question of awareness. You know, you can put something in a theater. That doesn't mean people are going to show up because, right. you know, they don't they don't know about it. So, you know, as as a distributor, you know, when you're when you're looking at you're looking at something like Skyline Warpath, you're like, all right, how do we how do we get that audience out there? What what are what are you what are some of the strategies you guys are considering just to to get that awareness up there? Um, well, I don't want to give away all the secret sauce, but, you know, we've got some fun stuff planned. I'll put it that way. Okay. Uh, but I mean, like in general, it, there's a lot of traditional, you know, distribution marketing that has greatly shifted, you know, over to digital media. Um, you know, so you don't just rely on newspaper ads and trailer play and stuff like that. You, you do take advantage of, the digital marketplace and you know facebook instagram TikTok. i'm not going to mention twitter because they're such a disaster these days to advertise with <laughs> yeah. uh but you know like there there is that component you know but i mean i i this is not mad max but i'm going to keep calling it my mad max you know like i really do want to lean into the fact that this is a uh, a franchise that a lot of people are aware of mm-hmm. and you know liam is a phenomenal filmmaker that deserves recognition at the level that you know the john wick filmmakers are getting you know like i i, I do think he's that good so i mean I'll, i'm gonna lean a little bit into that but like look there's just fun things that we have planned for this release that netflix and the other companies who have worked on these movies just are plugging them into their system 
this is not going to be a plug and play movie. Like this is a real opportunity for us to go crazy with something that, you know, has at least some value in this space, you know, because it's the fourth one in the series. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see what you guys do with it. Uh, I'm excited to, to check it out. Uh, all right. So, uh, you know, as you know, I always like to close by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's anything <laughs> folks should know about Sundance, the state of exhibition, where things stand, et cetera. What, what do people need to know about the industry right now? I mean, uh, you know, I'm going to always say these things. The more support you provide on the film, the better the entire ecosystem is going to be. And streaming is the cheapest, most accessible way of watching a movie. And the ecosystem is not going to survive if that's the only way for us to watch movies. Like, we have to still have a robust theatrical world. We still have to have a robust transactional world where people are renting or buying the movie on Blu-ray or on iTunes and Amazon Prime and Vudu and Google. Like, you know, if you want movies, you know, to survive, you have to be willing to support it outside of streaming. Uh, singing my tune, I uh, also <laughs> uh, also very much strongly agree with that. Uh, thank you, James, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, again, I I enjoy coming on, Sonny. Thank you. It has been too long. We'll get you, we'll get you back on when uh, when Warpath drops. I'm excited to talk about that. You gotta you gotta hook me up with with those guys. All right, uh, all right. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I am culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then.